0: The Spot Track Podcast, talking sports contracts, the salary cap, and business of sports. Today's edition of the Spot Track
1: Podcast is presented by The Athletic. No better place for breaking news, powerful stories, podcasts like this, and plenty, plenty more than The Athletic. Visit TheAthletic.com slash Spot in your browser. Get 40% off that first year subscription. Download the app, personalize it with your favorite teams, and you'll get exclusive content at your fingertips every single day. My name is Mike Cianetti. Happy Wednesday. It's a, a bounce around open and then a deep dive into some of the betting numbers, the division numbers, the win projection numbers, our thoughts on the closing of this major league baseball regular season and the beginning of this current NFL season. Dan Soman joins with some breakdowns of analytical numbers. Like I said, some of the, uh, some of the betting stuff, where we think some of these teams are headed. Um, both this year and next year in baseball, right? The rest of the postseason and then into next season. Maybe some sleepers to think about in 2023. And then from an NFL standpoint, teams that are currently at the top, how much we believe in them, how much confidence we have, players specifically, quarterbacks specifically, and uh, where the money may be falling in terms of uh, 2023 chips in that regard as well. So uh, bouncing around a little bit today, but plenty of good data to get to. And uh, looking forward to having Dan join us in the back end of this show. Nathan McKinnon becomes the highest average paid player in the history of the NHL, locking in a massive eight-year, $100.8 million extension with the Colorado Avalanche. Can't blame him. This is the right player, the number one overall pick years ago in, a, in an organization that has gone from up to down to back, all the way up again. And this is certainly your centerpiece player. They let Kadri walk. They let a couple other pieces walk away from them, but they knew this was going to be their guy. He's finishing up a seven year forty four point one million dollar contract right now. There's one more year left on that. So at least for this upcoming season, Colorado gets him at six point three million, but then that jumps up to twelve point six. Again, just slightly surpassing Connor McDavid's contract at twelve point five million per year. There's a no move clause every single year. It's his control. Huge signing bonus. Eighty five point three four of that one hundred million is signing bonus. So Minimum base salaries basically throughout this thing with the exception of one season. CBA related, by the way. A little protection there. And uh, a lot of cash in hand early. Yeah, you kind of love how this is structured. There's really no question marks. He hinted at this about a week ago that they were very close. You knew when the player was saying things out loud that it was going to be massive. There was basically no negotiation to this thing. It was probably just dotting the I's and crossing the T's and getting the structure hammered out here. But here we are. The fourth biggest total value contract in the history of the league. You got to remember there were some 20-year, 15-year, 20-year contracts back in the day. Obviously, that's gone with the new CBE rules. But 8 years, 100.8 million, 12.6 million per year. Just about as good as you can get from from a percent of the cap standpoint for the Colorado Avalanche and Nathan McKinnon. We don't talk a lot of hockey on here, but I want to kind of transition this contract into another conversation we have internally quite a bit here. Look, it's an AAV league. It's a cap hit league. Teams are going to spread these contracts out as much as possible, as we're seeing in baseball as well, in order to get that AAV as low as possible. It's a hard cap. And uh, you have to deal with what you have to deal with, right? 23 to 25 active players on these rosters. There's a little bit of leeway in terms of IRs and LTIRs that we talked about in the past. But the eight-year contract, which is the max, if you're staying with the, with the same team, has grown. We now have. As of 2023, so including Nathan McKinnon's extension in Colorado, 72 players with at least an eight-year term active in the NHL. Two of those players are old contracts and Shea Weber, whose 14-year deal with plenty of teams still exists, even though he's no longer formidable. And Sidney Crosby's 12-year contract, which hit just before the CBA changed the rules down to an eight-year maximum, he's got three years left on that through 2024-25. So take away those top two and you've got 70 players sitting with an eight-year contract in the NHL right now, 70. If we talk about seven-year contracts, which is the new team max, seven years and eight-year contracts combined starting next season, 111 players. So it's all about spreading it out. It's not so much the AAV. Like I said, there's there's a percentage of the cap that teams have a max of. That's why Nathan McKinnon is twelve point six million per year and not eighteen million a year, and that's why Connor McDavid isn't twenty million a year because, quite frankly, he's been worth that over the, over the past five seasons. So there's a maximum to the cap percentage, there's a maximum to the length, but teams are certainly taking advantage of that, even with players that ne- don't necessarily deserve it. Okay, if I scroll down this list on our rankings page, there's a hell of a lot of players here who have fizzled out, which sounds a lot like late thirties major league baseball players. You know, Albert Pujols not being one of them right now, but. Is this a broken system? You know, Dan Solomon and I have had plenty of conversations about this. Scott Allen and I have had plenty of conversations about this in Major League Baseball with the CBA, especially the latest iterations. Do we just have to deal with it? Is it just the way it's going to work? At least in, in hockey, there are some actual percent-to-the-cap rules in place that sort of resemble the NBA, which has a very rigid and structured system in place that we can rely on. So to some degree, the NHL is a version of that. But with baseball, the owners can do what they want. It can be a 20-year contract. Juan Soto can sign a 15-year, you know, 20 million per year deal. And it can sound amazing. But who the hell wants a player for 15 years? Truly. That's all about working the current accounting and dealing with a tax threshold that really these owners should not be thinking about. Now, in hockey, the money's just not the same. The ownerships are, def- are generally groups. There's a lot of minority owners that are built together. Certainly, there are a lot of rich people involved here, but there's not a ton of revenue on an annual basis. The TV deals are nowhere near any of these other sports, and they're global TV deals, right? So Canada has its own version. U.S. has its own version. So there's a lot impacting the ability for this, this league to grow. A lot of these owners don't own their, their facilities. Those that do make more money on concerts and things like that than they do on the NHL. It's just a very, you know, mid, middle of the road revenue stream. There's a lot of escrow. There's a lot of money being pushed years down the road. Players aren't paid their full salaries. There's a lot of uh, layaway situations happening here. built into the CBA, by the way, nothing that the owners are doing wrong. It's just a, there's, a, there's not a lot of faith and confidence in every single year we're going to make this amount or this percent more. It's tough to budget for this league because they take their hits. You know, when the, when the prominent teams aren't good, and we've had a bunch of years where your Montreals and to some degree your Torontos and those kind of teams are out of it midway through the year, that really hurts the Canadian market. And, you know, with the U.S., the New York teams have been meh for a while here. So, you know, your Colorados are exciting. Your St. Louis's are exciting. Your Tampa Bays have their moments, but those aren't moneymakers for this league. You know, Vegas at least helped a little bit there for a year and a half, but they're kind of rounding back into reality as well. So, yes, expansion helps. Yes, a change in networks can help. Although I don't know where the NBC situation is going now. But this the this is a league that doesn't have that outpouring of cash on an annual basis to change their structure too much, and they know it, by the way. And instead of Sitting down and, and getting to a possible lockout situation, the last couple of years, they've just said, "Let's just push this down the road." We're not in love with how this thing is working, you know. I think there are some players that would love to be making more than twelve million a year. Let's put it that way, but they understand that everybody's getting a little piece of the pie. I think the the pay you later situation needs to get addressed, and we could see a lockout in order to change that. But for now, this is just the way the the, the league is operating kind of a razor-thin margin. Owners that are certainly rich, but aren't pumping the kind of money and branding and marketing and and yada, 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 you know, ticket price flat lines that some of these other leagues are doing. And in turn, the league is turning very vanilla. Above average players are getting eight-year deals. Elite players are getting eight-year deals. And we're seeing buyouts prevalent every offseason. We're seeing a decent amount of extensions restricted free agency is basically gone. Those guys are getting two, three-year extensions at you know around the minimum, some a little bit more, one, two, three million a year. It's just a very simple, basic structure right now. And there are some rules, but not many rules. So if you're wondering why I don't sit here in front of the microphone and talk too much about the NHL, this is why. It's extremely in your face, super simple, super basic, If you've got a great player on the team that you follow, he's probably getting an eight-year contract, (laughs) okay? And there's a percentage of the cap that he has to follow on an annual basis. That salary cap is not going to increase much. One, two million per year at the most is where we've been going. Maybe there's some sort of jump in the next couple of years with the CBA change. But for the most part, what you can rely on is not much different every year. And that's fine. I think hockey fans appreciate that because this is not the kind of sport where the money is really too involved in the process. And I think they like it that way. It's a, a fast paced, really good watch on TV, especially in playoff time. Maybe the best, maybe still the best postseason sport to watch. And they want to preserve that instead of let's turn this into a nerdy business. There's plenty of analytics that's, that some people have really adopted, and myself being one of them, you know, the Crosby, those kind of things. But for the most part, this is a fast paced, let's play hockey, let's make it more of a sport and less of a business. And that's why, from a spot track standpoint, we just kind of go with the motion. A couple of massive retirements, both in hockey and then one in the NFL to get to here as we transition out. Uh, Keith Yandel, Zidane Chara, and P.K. Subban. Big names. A couple, uh, couple of them up in the upper 30s. I think Subban was 33. All made real good coin in this league. Chara finished 23-plus seasons at just over $100 million in total earnings. P.K. Subban, 13 seasons at 78 and change. And Keith Yandel, 16 seasons at 62 and change with a variety of teams late down the stretch. So plenty of bouncing around for all these players. Subban played for three teams, finishing with the Devils here. And uh, Chara's one of the rare players. They actually crossed the $100 million mark. Started way back in 1997 with a couple of late season games, full season in 1998-99 and didn't look back. It was a hell of a run and $100.4 million uh, on the records to show for it. So three big NHL retirements in the NFL just announced this morning before I got on the air here. Joe Hayden, a player who I thought would find a contender role, maybe a minimum salary with one of these contending teams, decides to hang it up. This one stuck up on me. I just forget. It's been a while, and the cornerback stuff has really changed so much. You forget that this guy was a bag getter. Five-year, $40 million rookie contract. He was drafted just before that CBA change, so his rookie contract was one of the bigger ones as the number seven overall pick back in uh, 2010. So huge rookie contract. He extended out of it at just under $30 million earned. Signed a $67.5 million extension with Cleveland. Ran three years out of that. Then joined the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers for the rest of his career. And in total, 121.4 million, second only to Drell Revis, who got 124 million. So he almost caught Revis, which in terms of cornerback uh, pay is, is somewhat unprecedented because Drell Revis did as much damage in the negotiation room as he did on the field. He was that kind of slayer, knew how to get in and get out. His agent knew how to structure one year deals that looked like five year deals. He was kind of doing the dead year void year situation before it really became a thing. He was in the midst of that kind of market and he knew how to do this and force himself out the bigger contracts. So the fact that Hayden in 12 years was able to get up near there pretty remarkable stuff. The second highest all-time paid cornerback in the history of football. That's what Joe Hayden is. Now that's going to be passed because the market has soared over 20 million per year. But for now, that's what he walks away with. Hell of a career. Switch to the NBA quickly Robert Williams. The enforcer, going to need surgery. Tried to get this thing through the offseason. I know he had some work done. I think it was March. Got back for the postseason, kind of limped himself through that, that postseason with Boston. Thought he could just heal this thing on his own, but he's going to miss four to six weeks with knee surgery, a second knee surgery, I should say. So he's going to miss the start of the upcoming season. Not a big deal for Boston as long as he can get the health. Signed a four-year, $48 million extension last August that kicks in this year. It's pretty incentive-based as well. So 48 is kind of the baseline here, Um, or I should say that's the maximum here. There's some defensive player of the year award triggers. He was an all-defensive player last year, so that's likely this year. About a quarter of a million if he he remains an all-defensive player. And then if he can play 69 regular season games and they get to the conference semifinals or the conference finals, there's about 1.1% up to 1.3 million, and not likely to be earned bonuses that we've got broken down here on Spottrick.com. So he can make you know anywhere from 12 to 15 million in a season over the next four years, depending on how the Celtics do and certainly his availability on the court. But that's probably in question this year now, with him missing the next two months. Minimum might they might slow play this thing and get him back by Christmas if I uh, if I know MBA injuries work right. That's usually. A starting point to come back, and then depending on how that season's going, if Boston can kind of survive life without him, you're going to let him sit out until the meat and potatoes of the season actually kicks in, and that will unfortunately put him on the outside of this 1.1 million dollar bonus this year. But this is a guy that's got plenty of dollars in his future if he can stay healthy. I completely glossed over this this past week, and uh, I'm in denial a little bit, even though I shouldn't be. It's been what 18 months ramping up to this moment, but Roger Federer walked away or is about to walk away from tennis officially, even though he hasn't played in forever as he tried to heal and come back. And we thought maybe one last Wimbledon run, but didn't have it in him this year. And we we understand it's just, uh, it's not normal for what we're seeing on the tennis court with the, with the men and the female, but I would not be surprised if Serena Williams does try to give it a go. And Tom Brady, this thing back next season, even just for the majors. But 41-year-old Roger Federer is not. He's done. He's going to hang him up after a really fun tournament in the Labor Cup. Hopefully playing doubles with Rafael Nadal, who the two of them exchanged an unbelievable back and forth on Twitter, which I passed along. Hopefully you got to read that a little bit. Two of the most gracious, stealthy winners in the history of the sport. No question about it. And in terms of the money, neck and neck. So Rafael is going to pull away a little bit if he can maintain maybe a year or two more. And Djokovic is way ahead. And Djokovic has won the, the, the tournaments that matter. He's been as good of a winner as this sport has ever seen. He's going to hold the majors record. He's going to hold the money record. It's going to be his, but he just doesn't have that persona. And I don't know. That's too much to ask by the way, because to be this good and to win this much and have the kind of confidence you need to do what these guys have all done and then also be as gracious. And (laughs) I don't even know how to, how do you articulate what Roger Federer is? The, the, what I said on Twitter immediately after, I, after his tweet responding to this was it just seemed effortless to him. And it wasn't. He worked his ass off. He pre- always prepared. I bet you he was a crazy video guy with his coaching staff, understanding the types of shots, when the, when those shots come, the patterns, the trends of all of his opponents. But having that knowledge and just the freakish ability to play this sport at a high level effortlessly, that had to be absolutely mind-numbing for, your, for an opponent to look across the court and see a guy who was barely sweating, who was at times smiling, laughing off, great plays. That had to be an absolute mental gymnastics disaster for, for opponents out there. He was just an effortless player. It was a beauty is what it was. And uh, that's what Roger Federer has given us for 20 plus years now. 130.6 million earned on the court. That's going to go up just a tad, probably with this labor cut. But Rafael Nadal is currently at 131 and change, and Djokovic 159, despite missing a couple of majors this year. So, like I said, he's going to continue to pull away in terms of the, uh, the total majors, which is he's one behind Nadal for, tw- for number one overall. Nadal may sneak one more out next year if he can stay healthy or return to health. But Federer's going to leave with 20 majors, 130-plus change in terms of overall on court earnings and it's a big loss to the tennis community. There's no question about it. And one more quick hit here. Mike Evans suspended one game, big game against Green Bay this week for week three. The kind of repeat incident, right? Him and Marshawn Lattimore pushing and shoving. Evans got a little nasty. Sounds like Bruce Arians was instigator. Yes, this is the second iteration of this, but I don't believe that he was Suspended because it was a repeat offense, I believe it was just the the gravity of this situation setting an example early in the year there's a lot going against him right now unfortunately, and uh, the league is making sure to crack on the, crack down on some of the stuff so you can hate it you can love it uh he restructured his contract this off season to help for cap purposes and in doing so took a nice signing bonus away and in also doing so dropped his base salary to one point one million, which means one game suspension only forfeits sixty two thousand dollars I should say only with quotation marks but could have been a lot worse because uh, the, the restructure that, that happened converted $12.8 million. So we're, what we're talking about here is it, would, it could have been $715,000 lost for this one game suspension. And instead, it's $62,000. So you can say that uh, you know restructures are just for cap purposes. But for things like this, huge amount of money saved in terms of cash from Mike Evans based on that offseason restructure. All right, Dan. A little baseball, a little football. We'll get in and out of this conversation. Is uh, you know, it's a little too early to talk serious about football, and it's not quite time to talk about the finish line in baseball. Right? It's kind of like a a weird spot in basketball and hockey are just about rounding into form here. So I'm not exactly scroungy for content, but I found a spreadsheet from March 30th, 2022, where you broke down all the all the win total projections and the preseason odds for major league baseball teams and divisions. And we had a a nice episode, you know, six months ago about this. I'm going to readdress some of these numbers and you tell me how surprised, not at all, where you thought some of this was going to land in kind of a retrospect, right? AL East. To win the AL East, the Blue Jays were the betting favorites at plus one seventy five, so there was no minus. You know they knew this was going to be a tight race, but it was Blue Jays, Yankees, and Rays all between plus one seventy five and plus two forty. Did they get this right?
0: I think that was still a pretty good line in retrospect. Um, yeah. I mean, that Yankees obviously went nuts for a period there, but I don't really think that was anticipated by anybody, including. Um, the Vegas markets, So I, I think that was still pretty pretty spot on, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, the, you know, the, they projected the Red Sox to win 86 games. So that's a no. But, you know, nobody expected yeah, Baltimore that's the one to missed, win. Yeah. Well, it, b- Boston's losses went to Baltimore wins. And we talked about that quite a lot in our win projection total pieces. Somebody's going to sneak up on you. And this is going to happen in football in a second here, too, right? AL Central, your Guardians. Do you know that they were plus one thousand to win the division preseason?
0: Yeah, I don't think anybody really um, <laughs> gave them much credit except us. I think we we dove into at least the possibility that if the White Sox um, yeah. disappointed at all, that there was a void there and that somebody somebody would suck up some of those wins. And um, I, I mean, it, it it could have been any team, but it happened to be Cleveland. So. <clears throat>
1: I mean a lot okay, of things yeah. a lot of things went wrong. The White Sox completely became discombobulated. They were a minus 210 favorite to win this division and I get it. Uh, I I didn't love the pitching. I know you didn't love the pitching. Neither of us loved the Twins pitching. But the Tigers being plus 750 ahead of Cleveland, that still looks suspect to me because that's just banking off of offseason splash, right? That's Texas Ranger stuff, which we'll get to in a second here, but we knew that tiger stuff was going to take some time to to matriculate and I'm not sure it's ever going to They're, they're, they're going to blow it up in my opinion, but Cleveland at plus 1000, this is a huge swing and miss 77 wins. No chance. They're going to win 90, right?
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the tiger stuff couldn't agree more. I, I know I was personally onto the tigers a little bit, um, before the year, but that, I still think this is pretty egregious. Those two should have been flip-flopped. Yeah, that's
1: a total (laughs) mess. Houston minus 170. Obviously, they got that one right. And then Seattle plus 400 in the AL West. They nailed this one. Now, it it, it wasn't even as close as they kind of anticipated. And the Angels being third is, well, that's something. I mean, they got that one right. But 32 and a half games out out of first place, that's something as well. They actually nailed this division from a, from an odd standpoint. And it was kind of easy, right? I think Houston was a slam dunk that we all assume was going to kind of run through this AL, right?
0: Yeah. And it, I mean, that was locked up almost immediately. Yeah. The The angels struggled um, out of the gate. And um, I mean, the Mariners were were pretty good, but they didn't really hit their stride until um, mid season. And um, by that time the, the Astros were <clears throat> pretty, pretty far ahead at that point. So. Yep.
1: No question about it. Um, the Dodgers were minus 220. The Padres and Giants were slight pluses. Any of those teams just surprisingly disappointing right now? Obviously not the Dodgers. They still have a chance to win 110 games plus. But, um, you know, are, are the Padres and Giants just victims of being in the Dodgers division? Or should the Giants be better? Should the Padres look better after their big, their big trade deadline situation? <laughs>
0: Well, let's start with the Giants. Um, Obviously in 21, they, they had a lot go right. Um, They they kind of just like streamed the right players, if you will. Um, They brought in a, you know, Kevin Gosman, they had a number of things just like break perfectly for them, which put them in that position. And that's fine. I, I actually praised them for the way they went about that, but they tried to run it back almost identically this year. And it just, broke almost opposite. Um, and in a really tough division, nonetheless. So they, they hung around there for a little bit, but, um, you, you mostly the the Dodgers disappointed to start. If you remember, yeah. there was a point where um, injuries actually, like
1: crazy too.
0: Yeah. They, so they were almost even with the Padres, uh, early in the year. And then that just, they just pulled away real quick. So, um, the Padres though, I mean, what a disaster since the trade deadline. I mean, they were right there in terms of um, kind of hanging with the Dodgers for a while, but it's just went. Do you know where they are now? South. Yeah, they're like 20 games 21 back.
1: 21 games back. I mean, that's ins- I mean, a lot of it is the Dodgers getting healthy and, and just going on a ridiculous run, but you, you're right. What, what San Diego did at the deadline and what they came in with, and I understand the Tatis part of it, which they anticipated him having him, but Brandon Drury has been just as solid to be freaking honest. Um, what they did at the deadline should look more like what the Braves did last year, because that, I mean, I mean, they added bigger pieces, more significant pieces, guys who should be able to just settle in and, and hit the ground running. It's just been a disaster, Dan, as you mentioned, do they have any kind of chance in this post season? I mean, are they <laughs> worth your, any of your dollars right now heading towards October?
0: I, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm in on them from that perspective. You know how the playoffs go. Any team can get hot. They certainly have a roster um, that could get hot. They have a start. They have a starting pitching staff and a bullpen to match. That's pretty solid when they're, when they're kind of firing on, on all gear. So there's no reason they can't kind of catch fire, but you know, as it's going right now, they're kind of having trouble getting out of the mud here, but I, as you mentioned the kind of stretch they've been on here, they're still firmly in a wild card position. Yeah. So I, I mean, that's kind of a Testament to this expanded playoff uh, we're going to see. Oh here. yeah. I'm so.
1: glad they're there because there's the star power is crazy. And by the way, they have six horses in that pitching staff that can really, I, I mean, come this time of year, Dan, if those guys are healthy and rocking, that can really be a huge advantage for, for teams that generally <laughs> run three guys out there and then have to kind of Survive, right? I mean, I'm terrified about the Mets doing that with the Grom and Scherzer, both who've had side injuries this year and may have to go on three days rest or whatever. But that 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 won't be the case for the Padres. So if they can hit the ball, they have plenty of pitchers to get them through nine innings in these series, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, it, they're pretty well balanced in a lot of ways, and even though you know they're on the wrong side of variance right now in terms of how they're performing, I mean that can that can switch. You know, maybe the five days off gets them, you know, reset and and they come out, you know, looking like a powerhouse that a lot of people thought they were coming into the year. So,
1: and and you know what? Are we just downplaying them because of how great the Dodgers are and because we're not seeing Juan Soto on our TV screens every day in highlight reels? Because, oh, yeah, because in a preseason, looking at this chart, Dan, between 89 to 91 wins, that's exactly what they're going to do they're going to do exactly what we expected them to do. So are are we, are we crapping on them a little bit here without, uh, kind of seeing where this thing finishes off?
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we are. I, I, I just am not dedicating any dollars towards them (laughs) because, okay. Because the way you laid that out, the Dodgers are so strong. The Mets are so strong. And I really think the Braves are so strong as well. So, um, yeah. Could they get hot and, and make it happen? Absolutely. I just, um, you're right. I, I'm not there's at least. I'm not there. Right
1: there's now. at least three teams in this conference ahead of them or in this league that are ahead of them heading towards the postseason. So they're going to need lightning in a bottle. But it, it's, and, and I should say this out loud the, the 90 win projection in the preseason did not include Josh Hader, did not include Juan Soto, did not include Josh Bell, right? I mean, a lot has changed and it should have changed for the better. So to say that they're a 90 win team and that's fine is, is fine. But I think they expected a hell of a lot more down the stretch here. Let's just put it that way. Um, Reminders for next year. Let's just get them on paper now so that we can write them down and then come, you know, February, March when we're rolling back into this sport. If the St. Louis Cardinals ever have plus odds for the division ever again, ever, we have to bet it. (laughs) Why, Why don't we do it every year? Why don't we? We know how this looks. It's looked like this for almost two decades, right? I mean, they just find a way. They make the right move at the deadline. The Yankees just handed them a number two starting pitcher. It's fine. That's normal, right? If they ever have plus odds, we're just going to bet it. That's number one. Number two, I'm going to have to say the same thing about the Yankees, right? I know this division is loaded, and it's going to get better, and it may be a toss-up from here out, but the fact that the Yankees were plus 230, nuts. that that, that's nuts looking back in hindsight after that run, they went on. So that's rule number, number two. Do you have any rules looking at this list right now that that you, you want to address in 2023 and maybe forward?
0: Well, as a, as a blanket statement to kind of, to kind of piggyback on those two points, I I don't have a separate rule. I think what I'm going to focus on more personally next year is, is just looking at overall depth within teams and systems. Yeah. Um, th- that's where I got it wrong this year with St. Louis and Milwaukee um, to kind of address the Cardinals point. I didn't want to, I was not, if if you remember, I was not specifically in on Milwaukee. No, but you I was hated more, him. And I, and I,
1: I loved him because of this pitching staff that got this disastrously hurt throughout the year. So I, I remember right. this exactly. Yes,
0: Right. And I came around I, like earlier in the season, I, w- once they kind of jumped out to that early lead, it, it, I I was back in on them a little bit, and the reason I was in on them was I I was not in love with the Cardinals, specifically their pitchers. Well, at the deadline, they obviously addressed that. Milwaukee collapsed, had some injuries. Their offense just fell apart. St. Louis, on the other hand, like I said, made some trades, and they really tapped into their organizational depth, and that's where these two separated. When Milwaukee started facing injuries, their, their next tier of guys was just not on the same level as the Cardinals. And that's where we clearly saw a separation there. Um, so that just to like apply that to that example, I, I I personally am going to be focusing on really looking at depth throughout a system next year um, to, to at, having depth at the, at the forefront of my mind when I'm picking these teams. And, and that what includes,
1: by the way, guys, you, you're going to predict who are going to be called up and make an impact. Right. Because that's exactly a big part of St. Louis. That's a big part of uh, Cleveland. Right. I mean, big part of Tampa Bay, big part of Toronto getting back into it. Yeah. The, and that's something that, you know, the average Joe can't do. That's kind of why you're on board with us, by the way. So I expect some, uh, some great work from you on that because you're right. That is what gets some of these teams to the finish line here.
0: Right. And, and you, you, you and I both loved the Milwaukee staff and they had a really solid bullpen. It was the specifically for me, it was the offense. I just didn't think the offense was a a division winning offense and that kind of, you know, bore itself out. And the pitching staff was still as solid as usual. But once you, once Freddie Peralta goes down for a little bit, once Brandon Woodruff misses time, then you're starting to tap in to that next level the Aaron Ashby's you're relying on more on, you know, Eric Lauer, those types. And, where the Cardinals, you know, they, it seems like every guy they called up from the minors specifically on offense was just out of his mind offensively. So um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to be really diving into this off season um, and plan to have some good info for everybody.
1: One last thing because it transitions us nicely to the NFL as well with the with the giants specifically, is there going to be a team you think in this postseason that's going to resemble what the giants were last year for you? Because I think it's a really valid point. They, they they got had a bunch of bounces go their way. And yes, they won a hundred games and and kind of you know wore that championship belt. It kind of felt like the Tennessee Titans being the number one seed last year. And it kind of felt even more like the Cincinnati Bengals getting to the World Series last year or to the to the Super Bowl last year, right? which which now, two games in, it's early, but it kind of looks like that wasn't for real. Is there a way that we should be assessing the twenty twenty two major league baseball teams in that regard and saying, boy i just don't think that team is real so they may do some damage right now but there's no way it's sustainable from 2023
0: on i mean it's it's not a one for one comparison but the 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 quote not for real team is it has to be cleveland coming into this and i don't and i don't say that because um like i don't think they're incapable of winning a series or anything like that but they're an obviously young team they came out of nowhere um they're just they're way ahead of their schedule. And, and most importantly, the pitching, I mean, the bullpen has been really good, but the starting pitching is thin. I mean, it's pretty you're, you pretty much have Shane Bieber, Tristan McKenzie, and then you're just relying on some patchwork of, of um, Cal Quantrill and Aaron Savali and whoever might, whoever else might be healthy. So (laughs) that's what keeps me from really thinking that they, they can go anywhere this year. Um, So, but, but, it's not a one for one comparison because the giants relied heavily on just like veterans mm-hmm. and like one year deals last year. Whereas Cleveland, the reasoning I'm not in on them is it's just too early in, in my opinion. So, um, but in terms of like how the giants were built and in, in, in performed last year, I don't really think there's a good, good one for one. I do you or I,
1: no, not right now. I, I'm really trying hard to, to look at some of these teams that are at least going to be in the postseason. I believe in Seattle. I think Seattle's going to be even better next year. Um, they might be a year early from their progression. I, I, I wouldn't even say, I think you're being a little harsh on Cleveland. Now Cleveland, the problem with Cleveland, as you know, is they're just not going to be able to keep this thing together. You know, at some point, Shane Bieber is going to walk out of town or be traded out of town. And, and they're going to have to get really young in that rotation, which they, they always do well with, but can it, can it really continue? Can this really, st- you know, and then what happens with the manager? Well, Frank is not going to be there forever either. And we know how much of a difference he's made. So, they may be thinking the exact opposite, Dan, that, that next year might be an all-in situation. So do they go and spend more money than they've ever spent this offseason to bring in a major position player and a major arm as literally Franconos walk-off and Bieber's walk-off to this entire organization? It, it's possible that they go that route. Now, that that's not always successful. But no, I can't find a team like Tampa Bay, you just can't even count them out. They're going to win 88 games again or 90 games again. Toronto, we know what they've done. They've started from the ground and built this thing up. So there's no reason to believe that's not sustainable. Houston's only going to get better. Although the rule changes might affect them a little bit, but not enough to matter. I'll say this. um, From a a first to worst standpoint, I do think it is the Mets. Because if the Mets lose to Grom, and they've got seven other free agents that they could literally miss out on, one of them being their closer, one of them being their center fielder, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of names hitting this list that we've done some free agent work on Seth Lugo, the setup man. They could be completely different next year outside of Max Scherzer and Pete Alonso, which ain't a bad starting point and Francisco, Francisco Lindor. But I could see them being all in right now and then taking that step back next year. But I don't, th- I think you're right. I think the giants anomaly was, was just that an anomaly. And, uh, and if I had to put a team out there that I'm really excited about next year to finish this off, I wonder if you could guess it. We've talked about them a little bit. It's a National League team. It's what I expect. I expect this team to be what Baltimore is right now. Maybe even better, maybe even a better version of the Orioles next year. And I'm going to bet them early accordingly. Any guesses? the Cubs. No, God, no, no. I think they're going, I think they go even farther down next year. I know they're in on the judge stuff and whatever, but, and and I guess that could change my mind, but I think they are, Dan, they're releasing, they're releasing guys right now out of outright contracts that were, they're formidable home run hitters to start the year. I, I think they are an absolute disaster situation right now in Chicago disaster. And by the way, the white Sox, you know, could be doing that as well this off season. So that's a no for me.
0: Um, I, I actually don't know. I mean, I, the
1: huge the- prospect the- pool t- could be the best outfield in baseball in two years. Arizona, man. I, I think Arizona mm. who are 34 and a half games out of first place right now in just the ridiculous division. It's very similar, right? I mean, that's, that's what Baltimore's dealing with and has dealt with for decades now, right? They've got the Yankees ahead of them. The, the Rays have been way ahead of them. And now the Blue Jays are, are going to be markedly ahead of them in, in all regards. Arizona's going to have this. And they, they have done this right, in my opinion. They have the, you know, a couple of these arms have to hit now. But positionally, they are set to be loaded, young, and inexpensive. And if they want to go and have a Texas Rangers offseason and buy a bunch of arms, you know, Rodon and, the, and that kind of that player, they can really take a step forward next year. So I don't think that, I think they're a fringe playoff team in 2023, but I'm going to be betting them to take that step forward early if they can.
0: A lot to cover there. I know. Um, I know. Um, all right. Arizona. I, I agree with you, but I do think they're like at least two years away from really hitting that peak. I, I think they're like a uh, 2024 um team for me, but I, I do like the overall direction. I I just think there's a number of um there's a lot to there's a pretty wide gap in their pitching staff outside of Zach Gallen, in my opinion. Um can't they buy bullpen, that though? They've it's it's very difficult and they've done a terrible job in the past of it. So yep. Um I so I, I do like where I do like the direction they're headed. I just think it's a couple years early on them. Um the Cubs, I say them because I think they like themselves way better, and I do think they've made a lot of good front office changes, so I sort of trust that they're a little bit further ahead of schedule than I think they are. Okay, um, That's the only reason I brought them up, um, and, and I thought you had mentioned them once to me. Um, just to put it out there, the, the Cleveland window is going to be multi-year. I don't think they're all in next year, and really, I think the reason you've barely heard Shane Bieber like shame people freaking out about Shane Bieber the way people did with Jose Ramirez, Frankie Lindor, even Corey Kluber to a certain degree before mm-hmm. you know before his career fell off. Um, they're set up for a multi-year window here. They're the youngest team in the league. I think they're. I I don't think they're worried at all. Even um, without about- the coach,
1: then because I think Francona's got one more year. Dan.
0: No, no, I think they either. I. I I'm pretty confident that this will be a coveted job regardless of the market size. Um, It's just an organization that's always in contention. They always have a pitching staff. They always have good young prospects. I think, um, you know, in terms of teams that have managerial openings, it's going to be one of the more appealing ones Mm. um, in the, in the next coming years. But I I could be wrong on that, but I I do think it will be attractive. Um, And just to kind of round off everything, my team for next year, I think, that I expect um, I'm going to probably get some money in on them early as well um, is you brought them up, the Texas Rangers. Yeah, I knew
1: you were going there. Yeah, It makes sense. It makes a ton of sense.
0: And they really kind of fast-forwarded things last year, and they really do have a good crop of um, young players coming up behind them. Um, You have Jack Leiter in the system. Now you have Kamar Rocker in the system, who a lot of of prospect people think that they specifically targeted them um, because they wanted a guy that is not three, four years away. Um, They signed Mark Simeon, Corey Seager. They have Nate Lau. They have a ton Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, or Garcia. Really, they only have gaps in the outfield. Um, If they can maybe add one or two pitchers in addition to John Gray and the guy, Martin Perez, I heard he wants to resign there. The team wants him back. So I'm expecting that to get done. Um, So I think, like, the pieces are there that they're going to have some depth in their system, like I just talked about, wanting to focus on, um, you know, depth throughout the the organization. Um, that's going to be my, uh, that's my early front runner for like my team. So you think at least one
1: starting pitcher and one, one major outfield sign?
0: Um, yeah, I think they have a, I mean, I don't know specifically right now how they're going to attack that. If it's going to be like a sign, a bunch of quality guys rather than like a big free agent splash. Um, because the outfield (laughs) market is probably not going to be good. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they're, I think they're ready to kind of make that, that jump it with just like one or two strategic moves. Um, they made front office changes. Um, yeah, I,
1: they, better. I, I like the direction. <laughs> I mean, it's $600 million, Dan, they better, they better win some freaking ballgames. Right. Um
0: right. And the division, I mean, there, it could be a, like Seattle. I do like them to go forward, but there is like, there is a chance that they take a half step back next year. Um, maybe the Astros take a half step back next year. Yeah. So there, and there's a void there. I think the Rangers are the team that kind of, kind of jumps in.
1: I like it. Good convo. Let's switch to the NFL real quick, even though I know you're going to be miserable about this because it's only week three. Uh, I, I, I like to look at the DVOA stuff early on because I think it's a really good week by week situation um, just to kind of understand who's maybe overachieving, underachieving, blah, 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 rather than look at quarterback stats or, PFF grades, or, you know, I just want to see the team as a whole, because I think roster construction is the thing that matters the most at the end of the day, even though on a week to week basis, one player, you know, Kyler Murray can go off and have a Kyler Murray week. The bills are at number one in overall DVOA, as you might imagine, the gap that they are number one is the biggest gap I've ever seen. And I don't, I don't know the historical numbers of DVOA. I don't have it in front of me. But I've never seen a 31% difference between number one and number two. And that's what it is right now. They're an over 80% DVOA, Dan, which is nuts. Um, It's the number two team I want to focus on with you. And and really the top five at a total here. But number two is Jacksonville, Dan. And speaking of teams that went all in during an offseason Texas Rangers, that's exactly what the Jaguars did. Now, they did it after securing an offensive line and then a number one overall quarterback, which I do believe is the proper way to build an NFL team. And now they've built, they've filled in all of their middle linebacker and defensive tackles and secondary and a couple of wide receivers and, and, a, t- and a new starting tight end. You know, a- everything else kind of came with it. They already drafted the playmaker and ETN. I- am I supposed to believe this stuff? A- and now ha- in hindsight, having seen Tennessee and Indianapolis kind of crumble underneath us, am I supposed to believe in this? Because a 48% DVOA in week two is a pretty damn good start.
0: Yeah. So to back that point up, I mean, only two weeks ago, the Jaguars were plus 700 That's right. seven to one odds to win the division. And now it's just under three to one odds at, at plus two ninety Um only two weeks later. And the Colts are Oh, and two. So I think the Colts are going to get it straightened out. There's a lot of changes there. There's going to be some, some time for everyone to get on track. Um, But I have money down on Jaguars uh, to win the division as well as one of my favorite long shots um, this year Um, with um, Doug Peterson there, a second year lead from Trevor Lawrence, nice signings. Um, I mean, think what you want about Zay Jones, but I really liked um, the Christian Kirk signing. You bring in Evan Ingram. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's for real, but I I mean, I don't know if the DVOA stuff will, you know, will hold up long-term, but I I think, I think they're clearly better than the Titans at this point. Is that even a discussion? No, it's not
1: a discussion. I think the Titans start selling pieces. They're they're left tackles out for the year from what I can see now in Taylor Lewan. It's just, it's literally crumbling. And Houston, by the way, they're going to, they're going to correct this, right? The the, the one tie they have is not going to be the reason they don't get the number one overall pick. Let's just put it that way. They're going to have that mindset going into the rest of the season. So it is Indy and Indy will correct themselves. But that's a 500 team, which I realize is impossible in a 17-week schedule. But Indy's a 500 team. Can't Jacksonville just be one game better than that? Hell yes, they can. Yeah, for sure. Hell yes. They have the playmakers that can get this done. They have more playmakers, in my opinion, than the Colts do. Because the playmakers that the Colts have, Jonathan Taylor being the big one, obviously, just haven't reared, reared their heads yet. And none of these wide receivers, and including Michael Pittman, who I know can play, have consistently shown they can be superstars in the NFL or even above average wide receivers. That's just not the case with Jacksonville. It's not. They're, they're going to have guys that have big, big weeks like Christian Kirk had to start the season. And Trevor Lawrence is going to get better and better every week. That's just the mindset I have with him. They've got him at a 56% chance to make the postseason. That doesn't mean division. That just means slide into the postseason at some degree. Not a ton of confidence there, right? I mean, that's not a number I would hang my hat on right now, but, in the grand scheme of things, at least to start it, what this, what this DVOA list is telling me is that is what I believed I was seeing in the offseason when I was transactionally changing this team day by day. They got better everywhere. They are deeper and better everywhere. Are they deep enough to, to make a postseason run? I can't tell you that, but I'm, I'm glad you got some dough on it. Let's put it that way. Almost the exact same conversation with Baltimore, who's third in DVOA. Do you believe in that team, Dan? Or is Lamar just Lamar?
0: Yeah, I I mean they've had a atrocious start, but long term I I still am in on the Ravens, yeah.
1: Okay. The, enough to take the AFC? Um not, uh,
0: the the AFC North, yes. Yeah. The the whole AFC, no, I mean I I'm not there yet.
1: No. Okay. KC is fourth. Uh, I would put them second behind Buffalo right now. I think that's fair. And maybe Baltimore third, although I just don't believe in, the, in those weapons. I just don't. Philadelphia's fifth. This is obviously the next conversation. It's the one many people are having on a national scope. Philadelphia did. Philadelphia did a bigger version of what the Jaguars have already done. It's been a two-year span of trading draft picks, acquiring big players from the draft. Now a couple of free agent splashes, a big-time trade for A.J. Brown restructuring a ton of defensive players that they knew could make an impact immediately versus carrying about three, four years from now. Is this a team, is this a roster and now a top five DVOA and heading into week three that is built to win the NFC because they have the best DVOA in, in the entire NFC right now?
0: For sure. Yeah, they're, I can't really poke any holes in there. I mean, they had a pretty awful defensive showing on week one against Detroit. That gave me a little cause um, for concern, but then they, they straightened it all out at home, um, in week two against the Vikings. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm in on the Eagles. They, I think Jalen Hurts could easily be like, like a QB one overall in like, you know, from like a fantasy perspective. I, I think, I think this team was ready to explode. And, um, I really can't believe that, um, they were, they were behind Dallas in the odds for a lot of the off
1: the last time the Eagles extended a rookie quarterback after his third season, it didn't go very well. <laughs> okay. Carson Wentz obviously had his misgivings and, and his, and his accuracy issues and Nick Foles kind of stole his spotlight and his thunder, yada, yada, yada. Is there any reservation in your mind that, that Jalen hurts gets a contract this February?
0: No, I, I think it's, I think it has to happen. Um, there he, he's there's a bigger sample size than kind of what we saw with uh, Carson Wentz when he got that deal that was really just like you know coming off the Super Bowl
1: it was super weird like right that, so there was just no yeah, reason so. to do it in my opinion otherwise other than making sure that he understood he was still the starting quarterback of the team and they did that with 105 million guaranteed so yeah. I feel like there's other ways yeah, to her, do that right
0: yeah so if her I mean maybe Hertz goes off a cliff the rest of the year for some odd reason, but I, I think everything is is set up. The coaching, the personnel around him, at the front office, as you as you spoke to, um, it just is always seemingly making the correct move. Um, so yeah, I really really like the Eagles.
1: I'll get you out of here on this question. There are four quarterbacks who I think are up for major extensions next next offseason, next February or March. Rank them in order of confidence of contract. Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, Lamar Jackson, Jalen Hurts. Mm. Do I add to it to this conversation? No, I don't.
0: No, um, it's 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 a toss up. I mean, I hate to like waffle on this. Um, I I would probably put Burrow last. If it, it, I don't know if that's a if that's kind of hot takey, but um, Lamar Hurts. Herbert, I think, are all in the elite. Okay, you know, conversation. I guess. I I know people want constantly want to poke holes in Lamar's throwing ability. I, I'm I'm not gonna like necessarily stand for him on it, but um, I do think there's more meat on the bone than what we've seen. You know, through his time in Baltimore. So, um. But we have seen him per like be utilized in a pretty effective way there as well. So. Um, I think it's those three and then Burrow for me, like a, a pretty clear teardrop, but um huh. I, I guess I'd say Herbert.
1: <laughs> Can Tua get yeah. in there? Can Tua get above Burrow for you?
0: No, not on a one year sample. And and he's gonna be another system guy to me. Like we <laughs> I, a lot of his success this year, to me, is going to be be coming from the Mike McDaniel system. That's that, right. That's not necessarily calling him a bad quarterback. A lot of, excuse me, a lot of players are are system quarterbacks. But, um, you know, I if he puts up a crazy year, I'm going to want to see another or two, you know, before I really see any kind of financial commitment to him. But I know that's not how things work in So
1: all right. Dan Soman loves the Cubs and hates Joe Burrow. That's what we learned. Oh today. yeah. Right. Good that's staff, that's man. the takeaway here. unreal. <laughs> Bulletin board <laughs> material. Thanks man.
0: <laughs> thanks Mike.
1: All right. My thanks to Dan. My thanks to the athletic. Visit theathletic.com slash spot for 40% off that first year subscription. Check out all the athletic articles on spot track.com on your favorite team or player pages today for Scott Allen. My name is Mike Cianetti. Thanks for listening to this edition of the spot track podcast.